Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi folks. In this episode At a crossroads, salvation or starvation, we continue our journey into the early summer of 1847. This is a pivotal moment in the story of the Great Famine because decisions taken over the next 30 minutes or so will overshadow Ireland for years. The past few episodes of the series have been very focused on local histories moving across Ireland through the early months of 1847. While these are invaluable to see what life was like on the ground, we also need to keep an eye on the bigger picture because whether it was people in Dublin or Skibbereen, much of the horrors Irish people endured had been shaped by the disastrous British government response to the Great Famine. In early 1847, as we are about to see, this response changed dramatically. So to understand this shift in policy, and why it's so important, this podcast brings you to the heart of power in the British Empire, the House of Commons in London, where debates around the famine were making for strange political bedfellows. The results of these debates would usher in and frame a new phase of the Great Hunger. While the coming episodes will return to stories from individual communities, the events that take place in the House of Commons in this podcast will create chaos on the ground in Ireland. This show will also contextualise the visit of the French celebrity chef Alexis Sawyer to Ireland, which we looked at in the last podcast. Then we will conclude with a look at how soup kitchens provoked major riots in some parts of the country in the summer of 1847. History is often hard to summarise, and this is particularly the case when we are dealing with a topic like today's show about major government decisions that impact the lives of millions of people. However, in the case of the events we are about to discuss, they can be somewhat summarised at least by looking at the life of one man who plays a central role in them. The individual I am referring to is now a pretty obscure figure called William Gregory. But in early 1847, he was increasingly becoming well-known in Ireland for all the wrong reasons. The son of a respected Galway landlord, Robert Gregory, William had been elected MP for Dublin in 1842, after which he supported the Conservative government of Robert Peel. 
Never to the fore of politics, by late 1846 it actually seemed like William's political career was more or less finished. The Conservative government he had supported had fallen from power that summer and given some of his own decisions it seemed almost certain he would not be re-elected. William Gregory seemed to be heading for the footnotes of history books but then he briefly returned to the centre stage of politics in 1847 just long enough to guarantee any book written about the Great Famine would have at the very least a few pages about his actions. In Ireland, the decisions he took made him hated. He was quickly becoming public enemy number one. By the time of his father's death in April 1847, this had never been more obvious. Robert Gregory, his father, was eulogised when he had died after contracting typhus while administering famine relief to his poor tenants. In contrast to this, that same month, William was being subjected to a relentless criticism in the press. The Freeman's Journal led the charge against him by comparing him to Genghis Khan. To say the man wasn't liked was an understatement. It all boiled down to William Gregory's crafting of what proved to be one of the deadliest pieces of legislation drawn up during the entire history of the Great Famine. It would bear his name, the Gregory Clause. This transformed British famine policy in Ireland and is the essence of today's show. To understand this, however, we need to look back at how the British government had been handling the Great Famine from the outset. While this has been covered over the course of multiple episodes, it's worth giving a quick recap now. When the famine had broken out in 1845, William Gregory had supported the Conservative government who were tasked with dealing with mass starvation as it emerged after the failure of the potato crop that year. The Conservatives, like all parties of the day, were increasingly influenced by what was then a relatively new doctrine of free trade. This argued that the most effective way to resolve starvation was to allow markets function uninhibited by government restraint. Therefore, the government had refused to take any action that involved stopping exports of food from Ireland, measures that had been central to successful famine relief policies in previous decades. That said, in the first year of the famine in 1845, the Conservatives had imported large quantities of Indian maize, which, when distributed in early 1846, had been largely successful in staving off mass starvation. In the summer of 1846, the situation had deteriorated, however. The blight returned and more or less wiped out the entire potato crop, leaving somewhere in the region of 3 to 4 million people threatened with starvation. At this critical moment, the Prime Minister, Robert Peel, and his Conservative Party, including William Gregory, fell from power and were replaced by the Liberals under Lord John Russell. The Liberal government were doctrinaire advocates of free trade and believed in stringently following these principles. And so, they adopted a strategy that would see the government interfere as little as possible. They not only refused to stop exports, but they massively scaled back the imports of food at the same time. Their main strategy was to create employment on public works schemes where the poor could earn money which they could then use to buy food. By January 1847, these were employing over 600,000 people. But the entire strategy was an unmitigated disaster. Huge quantities of grain had been exported, contributing to a massive rise in the price of food in Ireland. 
Meanwhile, wages on the public work schemes were simply too low to feed the people. And the work itself was entirely unsuitable for a malnourished people. It was frequently heavy road building and it in itself was contributing to increasing fatalities. By January 1847, Ireland was on its knees and it was clear there had to be a major shift in the way the government was responding to the crisis. Indeed, even in the corridors of power in London, where there had been an ambivalence towards Irish suffering, there were demands for a new strategy, as the cost of the public works seemed to be spiralling out of control. In January 1847, they had cost £750,000, and in February that year, the bill was almost £1 million. This is a phenomenal amount of money at the time. The famine, therefore, had clearly reached a critical juncture, or at least a critical juncture in the way the British government was handling it. A major change was inevitable. By January 1847, the House of Commons was debating what would become a new policy for Ireland. Now you might expect that the issue of free trade would be central to this debate, particularly given its detrimental impact was obvious to some at the time at least. For example, the Tory leader in the House of Commons, Lord Bentinck, bluntly stated to the government, People have died by the thousands and I dare to ask them, the government, I dare to inquire what the numbers of the dead have been. Dead through their mismanagement. Dead chiefly through their principles of free trade. Yes, free trade with the lives of the Irish people, leaving the people to take care of themselves when providence has swept food from the face of the earth. However, most government politicians were still wedded to the principles of free trade in spite of this and it was clear it would still shape any new policy. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Charles Wood, an out-and-out ideologue, was committed to a more extreme version of current policies, if anything. He claimed that the British government should be cautious about funding any famine relief, or else they would, as he said, have the whole population of Ireland upon us. While a commitment to free trade would remain central to any new strategy, it became clear the controversy over the new approach would focus on the role of the poor law, the 19th century equivalent of social welfare services. Indeed, it was this that dragged William Gregory centre stage, making him a Genghis Khan in some eyes. But first, we need to take a quick break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. 
Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. As we saw before the break, major change in the way the British government was handling the famine was on the cards and in January 1847, Lord John Russell, the British Prime Minister, unveiled two new pieces of legislation. The first was straightforward and provoked little controversy. Known as the Soup Kitchen Act, this paved the way for the government to open soup kitchens which would provide free cooked food to the starving poor up until August 1847. It was designed as an immediate measure to replace the failed public work schemes and stop the hundreds of thousands of deaths many were predicting. However, it was only temporary in nature and due to expire in August. I will look at the soup kitchens established under this act later in the episode, but first we need to take a look at their longer term strategy, which came in the form of a second law, which would transform famine relief in Ireland. Since the outset of the famine, one of the primary concerns among politicians in England was not humanitarian concerns, but instead the cost of famine relief. By 1847, the public works schemes, as we have seen, were costing a truly astronomical amount and British politicians basically wanted rid of what seemed to be a costly and very ineffective strategy. To this end, they proposed the Poor Law Amendment Act. Innocuous enough as it sounds, this led to a deadly conflict in the House of Commons rooted in something that is so often the source of arguments, money. The core of the question was who would pay for Irish famine relief into the future because essentially no one wanted to. This led to a three-way struggle and the best way to explain the three factions is to return to William Gregory's estates in the west of Ireland and a place called Kinvara. Kinvara is a truly beautiful place today, a coastal community looking out over Galway Bay and the Atlantic Ocean. In 1847, however, the levels of starvation were horrific, as you might expect. Out of the 10,000 people living in Kinvara and the neighbouring region, a local priest estimated he couldn't find 100 people who were not, in his words, first-class paupers. These first-class paupers, as they were called, were essentially famine victims and were the most important group in this three-way fight emerging as the British government proposed a new policy. It was, after all, their lives which were on the line if something was not done soon. The second group were Irish landlords, men like William Gregory, who owned the lands around Kinvara. The poverty of their tenants mattered to men like Gregory, if not from a moral perspective, certainly from a financial one, 
because of a tax called the poor rate. The poor law, the 19th century equivalent of social welfare services which operated workhouses, the last port of call for the desperate during the famine, was funded by this tax. And given it fell to landlords like Gregory to pay the tax for those who lived on farms valued less than £4, essentially the farms of the poor, any poverty on his estates cost him heavily. In the west of Ireland in particular, many farms were tiny, leaving landlords with pretty large poor tax bills. In Kinvara, for example, William Gregory was said to pay 18 out of every 20 shillings he collected in rent on poor rates. Therefore, this second group, landlords in Irish society, had a keen interest in how famine relief was going to be funded and they certainly did not want it coming from the poor rates or the poor law. The third group in this fight was the most powerful. Essentially, the people holding the power of life and death over the paupers of Kinvara. But at the same time, they'd never even set foot in the place. This was, of course, the British government of Lord John Russell, who early in 1847 were formulating a new famine policy for Ireland. Their position was best explained by the maxim popular in England at the time, that Irish property that's Irish landlords, should pay for Irish poverty, that's Irish famine victims. Essentially, their bottom line was ideally whatever money was spent in Ireland should be raised in Ireland. The conflict between these three factions exploded when the government of Lord John Russell proposed the Poor Law Amendment Act, which, if passed, would transfer the entire costs of famine relief onto the Irish Poor Law System from August 1847. Basically, the government would wash their hands of it and Irish landlords would take on a substantial burden of famine relief. To do this, they proposed changes to the poor law. Previously, it had stipulated only those who were inmates in workhouses could receive relief, but the new law allowed for anyone deemed destitute to be given relief. In this situation, it was clear the poor law would need to raise far more money in taxes. Now Irish landlords howled at this prospect. If passed, they would now be funding all famine relief in Ireland. As the debate raged in the House of Commons, it developed a tragic tone though, given the first group, the most important one, the starving Irish like those back in Kinvara, had little or no voice of their own. Two Irish MPs and a handful of English MPs, such as George Julius Scrope, did argue their corner, but they were quickly sidelined as the main battle focused on the struggle between Irish landlords and the British government over who would foot the bill for famine relief. This was really disastrous, as the new famine policy was formulated in a parliament arguing over who should pay for it rather than what was most effective. Furthermore, Irish landlords at this point were possibly the worst group to fight Ireland's corner. The British press by 1847 were blaming them for the entire famine, painting them as cruel tyrants who mismanaged their estates, thereby creating the conditions that had led to the Great Famine. Indeed, when these landlords argued that the new policy could financially ruin them, one English newspaper celebrated the fact All that said, the actions of the landlords in the coming debates did little to dispel this dim view many in England held of them. Rather than mount a wider defence of the Irish poor, the landlords in Parliament, led by Gregory, essentially cut the vast majority of the starving people loose and tried to look after themselves. This they did through something called the Gregory Clause, an addition to the Poor Law Amendment Bill. 
It proposed that anyone who owned more than one quarter of an acre of land was no longer deemed destitute and therefore would not be entitled to famine relief under the new system. The landlord's ultimate goal here was to clear their estates of the starving poor for whom they had to pay the poor taxes. This clause would clearly make those facing starvation choose. They could only get famine relief under the poor law if they gave up their farms, which would make them homeless and give them no long-term way of supporting themselves. The callousness of this act was terrible. The reality was that Irish landlords were going to get rid of what were, in their eyes, unprofitable tenants during the worst famine in a century, even if it meant death for many. This act set the stage for mass evictions. Some people would leave their land voluntarily, but even those who chose to stay now faced evictions from landlords who often acted illegally. When it came before Parliament, as I said, men like George Julius Scrope and two lone Irish MPs, William Smith O'Brien, a man who will enter our story when we get to 1848, and Alexander McCarthy, the representative for Cork, opposed Gregory's clause. The other Irish MPs in the House of Commons found unity based on their class. In a telling moment, John O'Connell, a landlord and the son and political heir of Daniel O'Connell, a man known as the Liberator having led the campaign for Catholic emancipation, supported William Gregory. O'Connell stood before the Commons and claimed, It might not give complete satisfaction at first, but he was sure that before many years it would be found useful. The question is, Useful for whom? As the bill passed through the House of Commons with Gregory's clause, the poor of Ireland emerged as the major losers. This marked a major turning point in the story of the famine, as we will see in coming episodes, as it paved the way for huge numbers of evictions. For William Gregory, his short-term victory granted him an immortal infamy. This clause, which set the stage for untold suffering back in Ireland, was forever known as the Gregory Clause. While this bill would not really come into effect until late 1847 and will be the subject of future shows, it is worth saying one last comment on the British government's role at this point. While it was undoubtedly Irish landlords who were the main drivers behind the Gregory Clause, it was in many ways the logical end of the overall government strategy. They were essentially trying to wash their hands of the costs of famine relief by putting enormous financial burden on landlords. These were already a group many of the same British politicians had maligned as tyrannical and miserly, so it can hardly have come as any surprise to them that they would seek to change the law in their favour and start to evict tenants. Ultimately, therefore, we have to say the book stops with the government at the end of the day. Perhaps the most tragic aspect of all this, though, was that those most affected by the passing of this Act still had little idea of its implications by the summer of 1847. They were more concerned by a less controversial and more temporary measure, which we will now look at. While the Parliament in London was thrashing out the transfer of famine relief to the poor law system, back in Ireland it was actually the implementation of the Soup Kitchens Act, which was taking place at breakneck speed, that created controversy. While in the last episode we saw Alexis Sawyer, the French celebrity chef, arrive in Dublin to great fanfare to open his famous soup kitchen in the city, behind the scenes others were overseeing the rollout of similar kitchens across the island without any fanfare. 
these were being opened under the Soup Kitchens Act to provide breathing space while famine relief was transferred to the poor law system. The plan to feed the starving Irish through soup kitchens, even temporarily, was unquestionably a challenge to say the least. The British government were aiming to feed up to 3 million people and more from soup kitchens, some of which would have to be established in some of the most remote corners of the island. The unenviable task fell to John Burgoyne, the son of a British army general known as Gentleman Johnny who had gained fame in the American Revolutionary War. Burgoyne was unquestionably capable, but the British government's obsession with bureaucracy and administration inevitably delayed him. Before Burgoyne could do anything, he had to wait for 10,000 account books, 80,000 sheets and 3 million tickets to be printed. Nevertheless, he delivered a very impressive rollout, getting the basics up and running within two months. And within five months, the soup kitchens were feeding over 3 million people across the island. However, this policy, like pretty much all British famine relief policies, was not without problems. The Treasury in London, always with their eyes on the purse strings, started to plan winding down the problematic and costly public works schemes from March because the soup kitchens would, theoretically at least, be up and running and fulfilling a similar role of supplying the poor with food. However, this date of March was far from reality, as Burgoyne inevitably faced problems along the way. Regardless of this, the public works were shut down in a typically arbitrary and brutal fashion. On March 20th, one in five people working on the public works were laid off, including everyone who owned a farm of 10 acres or more, with no accounting for personal circumstances. A month later, on April the 24th, another 1 in 10 were let go, and then a week later, on May the 1st, all works were stopped unless they were given specific instructions to the contrary. This shutdown paid no attention to how Burgoyne was progressing While he did well, and by May the 1st, Burgoyne's kitchens were feeding 944,000 people, it was not fast enough for the Treasury. The dependents of those people they had laid off public works numbered well over 1 million, leaving a shortfall of at least 100,000 people who now were receiving no relief of any kind. This naturally terrified the starving population and needlessly fuelled a growing suspicion around the soup kitchens, which many had legitimate grievances with. People naturally wanted to take food home and cook it themselves, but the soup kitchens nearly always only gave out cooked food. Now the Board of Health had reasons for this as they warned against giving out uncooked Indian maize, which could be harmful if not prepared properly. But to add to the growing controversy around the kitchens, some of the food prepared was disgusting according to contemporary accounts. And the overall experience could be degrading and humiliating. People had to bring their families and then stand at the soup kitchen and wait until their number was called out. Unsurprisingly, as people were increasingly dubious of soup kitchens and thousands were being laid off across public work schemes, tensions began to rise in Ireland again. These exploded in May 1847 and protests took many forms but often focused on demands to remain in employment. For example, on May the 2nd, notices were posted at churches in East Limerick for labourers to gather at Newton Hill near Palaskenry the following day. Large numbers turned out to demand work, not porridge or soup, under the catch cry of death or glory. On May the 6th, a major demonstration of labourers armed with bludgeons and spades took place in Ennis, 
Sometimes it could even be more threatening. On May the 8th, 1847, around a thousand labourers met in Kilorglen County Kerry, demanding employment and threatening blood if it was not forthcoming. A similar demand came from unemployed labourers in Cashel who demanded bread or blood. The most serious incident relating to demands for employment took place in Meleek on May the 10th. After they were laid off the public work schemes, large numbers demanded more work, saying they did not want food from a soup kitchen. They then marched on the local soup kitchen, broke up the boiler, the utensils and destroyed records. After this, they marched to nearby Ardla Crusha to break up the soup kitchen there. When one man was arrested, this triggered a wholesale assault on the police station in which two others were shot and the police station was severely damaged. During May, there were also numerous robberies of food. Desperate crowds robbed livestock in fields and shipments of flour and grain being moved around the country were frequently attacked. On May the 5th, a mob of 500 people at Kilmacow, County Kilkenny, robbed the shipment of grain, but then returned nearly all of it when they heard it was for famine relief elsewhere. Another serious incident took place at Dunfanaghy in County Donegal on the night of May the 17th to the 18th, 1847. After police heard reports of an impending attack on a mill where grain was stored, they organised a detachment to stand guard. Nevertheless, a large crowd did gather and attack the mill anyway. Two were killed and the police were driven away and the crowd then proceeded to take the food inside the building. Given the levels of desperation, these protests were overall remarkably peaceful. Buildings were damaged and food was taken, but direct attacks on people seemed to have been few and far between, but they weren't unheard of. For example, on May the 21st, a bailiff, Thomas Dillon, was murdered, an attack provoked by the fact that he was due to prosecute tenants of his employer in court the following day. Despite this opposition, though, the rolling out of soup kitchens did continue unabated. Numbers being fed did increase, and with this, the opposition slowly decreased. By July, the changeover in policy from public work schemes to soup kitchens was almost completed. Over 3 million people were now being fed from these kitchens and famine-related deaths began to fall dramatically. In what was a remarkable achievement, famine deaths ceased completely in Skibbereen, where they had been so devastating, as we have seen in previous episodes. However, the famine was sadly far from over, even if many officials in England wanted to believe it was. The official name of the Soup Kitchens Act had been the Temporary Relief Act, and the word temporary was telling. It was due to expire in August, after which all famine relief was then to be transferred to the poor law unions. This wasn't exactly a hopeful situation, given the problems we have already seen that came up in Parliament. Many were now pinning their hopes on the coming harvest of 1847, which, in the early summer, did seem good. But even here, there were reasons to be concerned. The blight could return, and even if it didn't, the previous year, many who should have been labouring on farms and sowing crops had instead been working on the public work schemes. No matter how bountiful this harvest was, and even if the blight didn't return, hope was still in small supply in Ireland. In the next episode, we will continue our journey through the summer and autumn of 1847, looking at the harvest, and we will see if the dreaded blight would return. Until next time, Sloan.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 